a man was hired into a new job. And as he reported for work the first day, he saw a sign that looked similar to this. It was a little fancier and had a little more uh, design on it, but that's what the sign looked like. And so as he looked at it, and as he thought of the, the letters I-A-D-O-M, he wondered what that meant. And as he went around work, as he spent more and more of the day working, he noticed this sign in more and more places. And it was that obnoxious green color that you couldn't help but look at, and it would capture your attention whenever you looked at it. And him being the new guy, him being in his first day, he felt like he was already asking too many questions. So that was one question that he didn't see any need to ask. Finally, as the day was coming to an end, he just couldn't handle it anymore. And he said, what in the world does iodum mean? What is that word? What is that share? And one of his co-workers shared that it's an acronym. It all depends on me. And that was the mindset of this company. As they thought about doing business, as they thought about working, their mindset as individuals in this job was that it all depends on me. It wasn't for them to place the blame on somebody else. It wasn't for them to push it over onto somebody else. But it was for them each to do their job, to do their responsibility, and be dependent on no one else. One of the commentaries mentioned that this is how Jacob handled things. This morning, as we continue our journey through the book of Genesis, we come to Genesis chapter 32. And here in Genesis chapter 32, these first 12 verses, we see Jacob operating with that very same mindset. He's operating as if it all depends on him. Regardless of what Jacob has seen so far in his life, regardless of the reminders that Jacob receives, he sees and he believes that it all depends on him. And that's his mindset. And as we look at this passage this morning, we will be reminded that this should not be our standard operating procedure. We see Jacob learn a valuable lesson here in this passage. As we look at this this morning, there are three headings that we're going to use to lead us through. The first thing we see is the protection. The second thing we see is the preparation. And the third thing we see is the prayer. Before we dive into this passage this morning, let's just pause for a moment and pray. Father, we're grateful for this morning that you've given to us. And Lord, as we pause and as we come before you this morning and we open your word before us, we pray that your word would be open to us. Father, we pray that we would hear from you this morning. Take your word, speak to our minds, speak to our hearts, Lord. And I pray that when we leave here this morning, we'll be able to say that we have heard from you. And so, Lord, speak to our minds. You know what our week has been like. You know what our day has been like. You know what the rest of our week looks like. So, Lord, in this time, let our hearts be quiet. Let our hearts be still. And let us hear from you. Father, we are grateful for who you are, grateful for your son, grateful for your word. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. The first thing we see here is the protection. 
Look with me there at verse 1. It said, Jacob went on his way. Now, as we see Jacob going on his way, the last time we were together, we saw Laban go on his way. Look at verse 55 there in chapter 31. It says, early in the morning, Laban arose, kissed his grandchildren and his daughters, and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. We remember the confrontation that took place between Laban and Jacob. And after that confrontation was over and they came to their agreement, Laban departed and he went his way. They made that covenant agreement. Laban went his way. And now it's Jacob's turn to go his way. And I can imagine as Jacob headed out here that this had to have been a huge relief for Jacob. He has been looking in the rearview mirror, watching and waiting for Laban to come hoping that he got out of Laban's way and got away from Laban. And now there's peace there between him and Laban. There's not going to be any more confrontation between him and Laban. We've talked about how Jacob was between a rock and a hard place. He had Laban pursuing him from behind, and he was going to see Esau. So we know how it was when he left Esau's presence. So Jacob was between a rock and a hard place. Now he's at peace with Laban. Now he has Esau that he's got to deal with. And so Jacob went on his way. He went on his way, and he would face Esau. Now look at verse 1 as it continues. It said, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. As we look at this passage here, we see that the angels met Jacob. As we look at this passage here, we're reminded that angels are real. We look in Scripture, and we see that angels are real. We see that angels were messengers of God. God sends them as His messengers. They do His work. He directs them. He leads them. He instructs them, and they follow those orders. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13 says this, And to which of the angels has He ever said, Sit at my right hand? until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's a reference to Jesus Christ. Verse 14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So God sends His messengers out. God sends His servants, these angels out, and they minister to believers. They minister to followers of God, to followers of Christ. Angels are ministering spirits that God sends out. Psalms 91, verse 11 says this, For He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. As we look at that there, we see that God is the one who commands His angels. Angels seem to be very popular right now. We live in that day and age where angels are popular. You can go to any corner gas station And you can find figurines there. Some of them have Florida on them. Some of them have Michigan on them, Wisconsin. You know, you can buy angels from wherever you want. Some of them are cute. Some of them are big. Some of them are young. Some of them are old. Some of them have baseball bats. Uh, We see angels in every shape and form. They are a popular thing. I read that you can even go to seminars and learn how to visit with angels. That kind of scares me. But anyway, you can go to that seminar if it's a meeting of under 100 people, I think. But angels 
in these programs is they think angels can even come alongside you and help you solve your problems. But you know, as we look at that, as we think about that, we don't see that anywhere in Scripture. We see the God of the universe is the one who instructs the angels. God is the one who tells them what to do and shares with them what the message is to be. It's not up to us as man. We don't have that kind of control. Only God has that control. And as we look at this, we see that these angels went to Jacob. And because we understand what angels do, we understand that angels went to minister to Jacob. God sent them to minister to Jacob. Angels always follow the instructions of God. And so here they are meeting up with Jacob to minister to Jacob. Now, verse 2, it says, And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. That's such an amazing thing right there when you think about it. Jacob saw these angels. Most of the time, angels do their work unseen. There have been times in Scripture when angels have done their work and they have been seen. God's granted man the ability uh, to see them. One of the times as I read that, I thought about when uh, Elijah, Elisha was, uh, had a servant with him and the king of Syria was coming after him and they had him surrounded and Elisha's servant was filled with fear. We read this in 2 Kings Chapter 6, verse 15, it says, When the servant of the man of God, that's Elisha, rose early in the morning, he went out and behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed. And he said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The servant was able at that moment to see the Lord's army. Elisha knew they were there by faith. He knew that God was protecting him. By faith, he realized that. The servant was shaky in his faith. He was uncertain of God's protection. But Elisha's prayer opened the eyes of this young man, and he saw God's protection there. What had been unseen was now seen. Jacob is here in this instance, and what had been unseen to Jacob is now seen. In this time of uncertainties, as he's thinking about going and seeing a lot, uh, seeing, I almost said Elisha, as he, he's going to see his brother Esau, he's anxious about this. God comes alongside and comforts him and shows him the protection that he's had. Look at verse 2 as it continues. So he called the name of that place Maenaim. This word Maenaim means two camps. Jacob may make the declaration referring to God's camp of angels and his camp of people. But Jacob may also be looking at this and seeing that his camp is here and God is before him, God's angels are before him, and God's angels are behind him. 
either way that we look at this, we see if there's just one camp and his camp or, or two of those camps of angels, either way, God's protection is there for him. And Jacob realizes that. Jacob sees that. And he recognizes that God is with him in this. You know, it's interesting as we think about Jacob's life. This is the second time that Jacob has seen angels. Remember just before he left the promised land, he slept on the my pillow, saw the angels descending and ascending before him. And what did he say there? He realized that God was with him. And God said, I'll be with you when you go in the land, and I'll make sure you come back. Jacob went into the land, saw no angels, but then God brought him out of the land, and now once again he sees angels. You know, I'm not a betting man. I would bet on the NCAA tournament now since it's not being hosted, but that's a different story. I would bet that those angels were with Jacob when he left the promised land. While he was away, the angels were with him. And I bet you as he comes back, the angels were still with him. God just revealed it to him these two times. Just letting Jacob know, hey, guess what? That promise that I gave you, it's still intact. I'm the one that's still here. I won't leave you nor forsake you. Boy, what a great reminder for us. We don't always have the visual aid to see that God is with us. We're not always aware of God's protection. But you know, God is protecting us. God is there with us, watching over us. I was reading this week about a one of the early, uh, when the colonies were just set here, and there was an early circuit rider who was riding and sharing the gospel from town to town, visiting different places. And something that would happen often when people rode by themselves, uh, oftentimes they would be robbed. And this man was riding, and he saw in the woods ahead of him, he saw a group of men. And he was fearful that he was going to be robbed. But he kept riding, and he just prayed, God, if you would protect me through this. And he just kept riding. And as he started getting closer to those group of men, he heard something coming from behind him. And he looked, and there was a man riding on a horse behind him. And the man rode up beside him and paused. And he greeted the man with a friendly greeting. And then he braced for what was going to happen next. And they slowly rode by that group of outlaws that were there. And he didn't mention anything to the man he was riding with. But he rode by that group of outlaws. And then as he got to the other side and kind of breathed a sigh of relief, he turned to talk to this man who had rode with him. And there was no one there. There was no one there. You see, God had protected him in that moment, and in that moment he was able to see that protection. Those men who saw and were excited about robbing one person were fearful of robbing two and let them ride on by. Kind of an amazing thing when you think about God's protection that way. But God protected Jacob in this moment, and God reminded Jacob that he was being protected in this moment. And so that's the protection we see. Now there's some preparation that takes place as, Mo as Moses, as Jacob gets in ready to enter into the promised land. It says in verse 3, 
And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the county or the country of Edom. So Jacob, as he approached, he sent messengers ahead of him. These messengers were sent to Esau, and they would meet up with Esau. And I'm sure as Jacob sent these messengers, he wanted them to let Esau know that he was back in the land. I'm sure that he wanted this to be a peaceful meeting between his messengers and between Esau. I wanted, I'm sure that he wanted to make sure that Esau was understanding that Jacob was not here to bring Esau any harm. And so he comes into the land and he sends these messengers ahead. Now notice the message that these messengers were supposed to send. Look at verse 4. It says, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. So their message was a message of peace. As they go, we see their message was a message of humility. He recognized Esau as Lord. Jacob recognized Esau as Lord. So there was humility there. He was declaring Jacob, Jacob was declaring himself to be Esau's servant. And so we see his humility here as he comes before, uh, before Esau. And he shared that he was sojourning with Laban. He had not settled there. He had just been away for that period of time. And he was moving back. And notice it says, I have oxen. I have donkeys. I have flocks. I have male servants. I have female servants. I've sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. He has plenty of possessions. Several people had looked at that and said, boy, this is just Jacob boasting about his worldly possessions. But you know, as we've seen Jacob in this period of time, We've seen Jacob as a humble person giving credit to God, being a man of integrity. And so I think as he's coming to Esau with this message, I don't think he's bragging to Esau how wealthy he is. I think he's trying to reassure Esau that he's not here to take back his possessions that he left behind. I don't think he's here. I think he's here on a peace treaty, a peace mission, showing that he doesn't have anything against Esau and that everything's going to be okay between him and Esau. I think as we look at this and as we see all of these things that Jacob is doing, I think that's the mindset of Jacob. Now, we may get to heaven and find out differently, but, uh, you know, I don't think he's boasting. I really have a hard time coming to that conclusion. I think Jacob is a changed man. I think he is coming in peace and, and just seeking to make this a peaceful arrangement uh, with Esau. Now notice verse 6, it says, And the messengers returned to Jacob, and they said, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. The messengers do not know Esau's intentions. Whether they talk to Esau or not, they don't know why he's coming with 400 men. And think about that. If you're going to greet someone at the airport, 
How many of us gather up 400 men to go see them at the airport? Not too often, right? I mean, even when we're going to pick up family, a lot of times we think about driving to Detroit. My family will say, Dad, we'd love to go with you, but you probably should do it alone. They're, they're so kind that way. And, and they want me to go by myself, and they want to, you know, suffer that extra two or four hours and not see the family for another four hours. It's, they're willing to sacrifice that. So as we think about this, we realize that this group that's coming towards Jacob is a daunting display. Esau seems to have different intentions than a peace treaty, gathering 400 men to go with him. It seems like this is a posture of threatening, of, hey, whatever you bring against us, we're ready to uh, take care of matters in our own hands if we have to. Notice verse 7. It says, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Notice that word then right there. At that moment, he is greatly afraid and distressed. Boy, I'm sure, sure glad that we never face conditions like that, aren't you? Glad that we're never afraid or distressed about situations. I read yesterday a thing on Twitter, and the, pa- the man tweeted, he said, Pastor, as we gather at church tomorrow, don't talk about the coronavirus. Teach me scriptures. And I thought, you know what? I'm so thankful that we're going through the scriptures verse by verse, and I can share with you what it says in Genesis 32, and you know what? It's applicable to the coronavirus. I don't have to make it up. This is where he is. He is greatly afraid and distressed. Even though he's just had this encounter with the angels, even though he's just been reminded that I will protect you, he's still greatly afraid and greatly distressed. Jacob had this face-to-face encounter with the angels. He's been reminded that God is with him, that God's angels are on guard duty, yet Jacob was afraid and distressed. Now notice what happens in verse 7. Jacob divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Now, as we look at this, this is a military strategy. We see it a number of times in Scripture. We think about Joshua. He would send one group of the troops to fight the battle. They would withdraw, and as they withdrew, the enemy would come out of the city, and then Joshua's other group of troops would come in behind them, surround them, destroy the city, and victory would be there. So this was a military decision. But notice that Jacob's thought here is not a military decision. This is an escape plan. If we break up into two groups, he wipes out the first group. The second group has an opportunity to escape. But if he comes and attacks the first group with 400 people, they don't stand a chance. He's going to wipe them out. They're going to overtake the second group. We've already seen that happen with Laban. just took him seven days. So the best that's going to happen is get a, a day or two head start. 
but ultimately they're going to be wiped out. So Jacob's plan is not really a good plan of escaping, thinking that he will do that. But this is the preparation that Jacob goes through for this meeting. We saw the protection that God showed him and offered him and told him was there. And we see Jacob preparing for this meeting. But notice what happens last. We see the prayer in verse 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. Praying to the God of Abraham is what we see Jacob do here. It appears that Jacob's last result was prayer. He had all of this plan, and then all of a sudden when he sees the visual threat, thinks through his own plan of preparation. But prayer is what takes place next. Boy, I would love to shake my head at Jacob and say, you fool. But how often do I do the same thing? Know that God is in control. Do my own preparations and then pray. When I should be praying and then make those preparations. Jacob does just what I always do. Jacob now turns to God. But notice that Jacob turns to the one true God. O God of my father Abraham, the God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. Jacob doesn't turn and pray to the gods of Laban. He prays to Yahweh. Notice the word God there in lowercase. That's the word Elohim. That's the word that we see in Genesis 1 about God being the creating God, Elohim. Then we see the word Yahweh there that means the covenant-keeping God. So he's talking about the one who is creator. He's talking about the one who is the covenant-keeping God, his God, the God of his father Abraham, the God of his father Isaac. This is his God. This is the one that he calls out to. And notice as he speaks to God, he says, return Uh, The one who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. He recalls the instructions that God has given to him. He reminds himself that he's been obedient to those instructions. You know, as we think about difficulties that we face, doesn't it make our difficulties easier when we realize that we are where we should be. When I first came to Michigan, I pastored a little church there in Michigan. Uh, Actually, about this size, actually. 60 people, I think, was the first Sunday I preached here. Uh, As we think about that group, I I had an older pastor come alongside me, and he said, you know, I'd love to mentor you and just share with you and visit with you as, as you get your feet wet in ministry. And so I said, that would be great. Could your wife help my wife? No, I didn't say that. But as we came, we would call each other on a weekly basis, and he would visit with me and ask me how things were doing and how things were going. And one of the things that he shared with me is that in ministry, as you go through difficult situations, if you know you are where God called you to be, it makes your situation easier. Because you know you are where you're supposed to be, And you know, there's been times that we've faced difficulties. There's been some times where things have been overwhelming. 
But, you know, that's been the thing that I've looked to, is that, you know, we are where God brought us to be. And as we look at the circumstances and the situation of how we got to Michigan, it's only a God thing. It couldn't have happened any other way. It had to have been a God thing. And, you know, there's many times that we stand on that promise. This is where God has brought me. And, you know, as we think about open doors that God has opened us, opened for us, that we've gone through in life as we go through those doors, being able to look back at those doors and say, you know what, that was an open door that God brought me through. I'm here because God brought me here. That helps us overcome so much. And I think Jacob, as he's praying here, I can't help but think about that. Oh, Lord, who said to me, return to your country. Here I am. We're facing Esau. We're going to die. But God, this is where you brought me. This is where you have me today, is right here in this instance. And notice what he says in verse 10. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've done, that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Listen to that prayer of humility. He doesn't say, God, after all I've done for you, you're bringing this opposition to me? That's how I often pray. God, after all I've done, I went to Bible school. I, for you, God, I did that. But, you know, in those instances, I have to kind of step back and say, God, I'm not worthy of the gifts that you've given to me. I'm not even worthy of the salvation that you've given to me. That alone, anything else that you've given me in my life. And this is his prayer. You know what, God? I'm going to praise you if I have it all, and I'm going to praise you if I have none of it. All of it is from you. I'm not worthy of the deeds of steadfast love and the faithfulness that you've shown your servant. Has he forgotten about all that happened with Laban? No, he hasn't. Because even with all that went on with Laban, God blessed him through all of that. He says, God, you've blessed me through all of this stuff. You've proven yourself to be faithful. I deserve nothing. I crossed the Jordan River with just the clothes on my back and the staff in my hand. And now as I come back to the promised land, I've got two camps of junk, two U-Hauls I'm bringing back. This is amazing. God, you've truly been good to me. And you know, as, as Jacob is here, he understands that God has showed him grace, that God has shown him mercy. He understands that God doesn't owe him anything. And he praises God through that circumstance. Notice what he says in verse 11. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. His request is such a simple one. Deliver me. Please deliver me. He prays for deliverance. He shares with God that he fears Esau. And you know, as, as he looks at this, his fear is one of Esau's cruelty. For I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers, with the children. So his fear is that Esau is going to be cruel in this attack. 
that Esau is going to seek to wipe out Jacob and everything that Jacob has. That's his fear. His fear is not for himself. His fear is for those who are with him. He'll wipe out the mothers of my children, and he'll wipe out the children as well. He's there. But notice what he does. Verse 12. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob remembers the promise of God, and he is standing on the promise of God. God, you said, you said that you would do good, that you would make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Here he is with 11 sons and one daughter. They're already beyond his numbering. <laughs> he can't number them the way he is. But he knows that God's blessing is upon him because God said it was so. And so he is standing on the promises. And he goes back to the promise, and he rests on that promise. I'd love to share you how the rest of the story goes, but it's almost noon somewhere in the world. And so we'll end right here. But as we look at this, we see the protection, we see the preparation, and we see the prayer. So what do we take home from this? What do we apply to our Sunday afternoon? I think the first thing that we've got to think about is what it says in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. How many times have we been overwhelmed with our circumstances and our situations and then just been reminded that God. You know, the situation is too big for me, but God. In this situation, we see this but God moment right here. Esau is coming at Jacob with 400 men, but God. God is on Jacob's side. God is the watchtower over Jacob. God has this under control. And you know, as we look at our circumstances, God is still in control. There may be some lessons that need to be learned. may not be an easy process, but God, but God is in control. Thankful to be protected by the one true God. Aren't you glad that you don't carry around a little statue of your God? Set him on the table and put some hand sanitizer around him so he doesn't get pray over him for toilet paper shipments. Aren't you, aren't you glad we don't do that? I'm so thankful that the God of the universe is the one that's in control. So thankful for that. And we pray to the one true God. Not a God that was designed, not a God that was carved, but the one true God is the one who we pray to, the one who we look to, the one who we rely on. And I'm thankful for the promises we have. You know, Jacob was just 32 chapters into the story of Genesis when this happened. And he had no scripture available to him. But you know what? We have chapter 33 available to us and 34 and 35. 
And we even have the book of Revelation, so we know how it's going to end. We even read in here that there are going to be pestilence, viruses that are going to take place. It's already laid out for us. We knew this is happening. And so we can trust in the one who is in control. And I'm so thankful that we have those promises that we can stand upon. And so I have a question for you as we leave today. Where does your faith lie? Where does your faith rest? And by the word rest, I mean rest. Have you ever just taken that moment as you go to prayer? Maybe your heart is just agitated and anxious and worked over. Have you ever just paused before God? You know, sometimes my Sunday mornings are crazy. And I love that moment before we start the service. And I can just stand here. Lord, it's in your hand. What happens from here on out is in your hand. I've done all I can do. But you have to take control. And you know we have those moments where we have to take our faith and we have to put it in the hands of God and we have to rest. Peter tells us to cast all of our fear on him. The picture of that is casting in the net like this. Whole, all strength to get the net in the water. Too often times when I cast my fear on the Lord, I act like I'm bass fishing. I throw it out there and I reel it right back in. I throw it out there and I reel it right back in. That's what happens to me so often when I'm fearful. But we should be casting our fear on Him and resting on Him, knowing that He is in control, knowing that He is the one 